This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Will party holidays live on forever? So today is DLT day, finally. The garage scene here is so interesting at the moment because you've got like all your London club promoters coming over with their club nights. Napa, no, what's Napa saying this year? Napa is massive. The people who are in London, they're not even ready, they don't know. You're listening to Pop Culture with me, Shantae Joseph for The Guardian. There is a long history of going on party holidays in my family. Before I was born, my dad went to the first Innovation in the Sun and ended up DJing there. My aunties and cousins used to go to Ayanapa and they would come back with some amazing stories. For me, I've been going to events like Recess, Danky and DLT for years. And these events, many of them having started as small black day parties, have started to expand into huge party holidays. So why are party holidays so important? This yeah. one, I'm like, yo, I'm in The Guardian, bro. <laughs> yeah. This one is going on in the newspaper. <laughs> is, I quite like The Guardian is my favourite publication. Anne and MK are the founders of DLT, Days Like This. They're taking the party to Malta this week, and by the time you're listening to this podcast, I'll be living my best life there. So how did the boys start this party? DLT, I'll say it started off as a day party, but um, I kind of think we see it as, it's a bit more than that now. Um, it's a bit of like a movement now. We're trying to be involved in everything. Me and my friends, we all lived in New York. We did an internship in finance, funny enough. We were all living out there. We never went to work. And all we did was uh, party. party. And we're looking at the parties. We're like, wow, why are we partying so much? Like, we don't party this much in London. Like, what's like, what's the difference? And we realised that a lot of the people, a lot of the parties that we went to, people literally dressed how they wanted. Um, they embraced black culture, embraced black music. And it was like a breath of fresh air for us. And we were like, we can bring this to London. We can bring this kind of like movement and vibe into London. And when we moved back, we are like, do you know what, guys? Let's try it. Um, started off with 200 people. 200? 300. Literally begging all our friends, like, buy your tickets, buy your tickets. Tickets were five tickets. pounds. Like, Please buy a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it just went on from then. It just went from, went from strength to strength. And now 
we've got Malta, we're doing festivals, we're booking our favourite artists and stuff like that, which is it's a bit surreal for us. Yeah. No, it's amazing. And can you paint me a bit of a picture of your like early clubbing days? Like, do you remember the first time you went out like properly clubbing? What was that like for you? What were your experiences like? Um, my first early clubbing experience, I went out with my older brothers. I got two older brothers. And we, I think it was somewhere in East Central, maybe Old Kent Road, I can't remember. But I just remember we had to dress up, had to wear, I, I had to wear a belt. Like, do you know what I mean? My brother borrowed me his belt, he borrowed me his shoes. And he's like, no, we've got to look smart, we're not going to get in. So from early, that's always been imprinted in my brain that when you're going out at night in London, you got to come smart. You kind of said in previous interviews that you wanted to create a space with DLT where people can dress the way they want. And obviously you talk about your early experiences of going out and being told you have to dress up smart. And I'll never forget that day on Twitter where everyone was like posting their pictures of like wearing blazers in the club. 100%. And now I was that guy. And the people were wearing like blazers, the girls were wearing like peplum skirts. It was literally giving office, office, office wear, wear to, yeah, yeah. To, the, to the club. To the club. So, yeah. And I think I kind of outside of that um idea of like restrictions on the way you dress, were there any other things about like nightlife that you yeah, found quite... it was it I think it was one of those things where you didn't feel that welcome I mean getting turned away from a night out was normal like, yeah. for, for a guy it's, like, dip, it? it's like guys we're going here tonight but let's arrive at nine let's go in separate groups so mm. bare times you wouldn't get in and then sometimes it's like you get in and the, you'd wait for an hour of music you recognized other than, other than that it's just music all night. <laughs> um, I guess when we came back, I think we went out. We were trying to go out. Like, you know, so coming back from New York, we're still trying to go out as much as we did in New York, but we're just realizing that there's nowhere to yes. go. There's yes. nowhere that's catered for us. You know, whatever. Let's just create our own night with our friends, even if it doesn't go well. Like, yeah. whatever. It's our we've music. It's our mates. Yeah. We've done something. And then we later realized that we weren't the only ones who had that frustration or felt that gap anything we do now it's like this is a space for like black people to enjoy themselves and be themselves in terms of its growth obviously you started you said there were like between 200 300 people and now you've kind of gone on to do international events like huge events festivals and so why do you think it has just grown in the way that it has i think like black people kind of just said hey we also want to do our own thing like yeah. we're tired mm -hmm. of going to these things that aren't for us and I think, uh, you know, when that whole kind of George Floyd thing happened, people were intentionally like, actually, I want to put my coin behind that. And I don't, I think like that was also kind of translated into nightlife. It's like, yes. I want to go to a black event where yeah. the music's created for me, where the food is for me, where the people are, are like me and where the experience is what um, I want. You're in a black space. And what made you bring the event internationally? Like, how did you start to say, do you know what? London is great. We're doing great events in London. Now we're going to go to Lagos. Now we're going to go to Malta. We wanted to connect with the diaspora. Mm. Um, and I think we wanted to show the rest of the diaspora what black British culture looks like. But also there's more stories to it like that than uh, top wear. Okay. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean? Like, like, like black yeah. British people are, black just, British people are uh, more than what you see on top right? where. Yeah. There's a joyous side of it, you know what I mean? And that we're cool. Like, so we kind of thought like, you know what, London's sick, but we want to connect with the rest of the black diaspora. And also we want to learn from them as well. Do you know what I mean? When we go over to Africa or New York or a, or a Toronto, like we want to see what's popping on that side so we can also enhance what we're doing on this side. Do you have any crazy like stories, like near misses with events or artists, like Give me all of the tea. Oh, the stories are funny. Yeah, the stories are funny because they're the hardest part of it. Like we had no clue 
how to book artists before. Like, we just literally just we thought like, oh yeah, you just speak to the manager and all that stuff. But there's just so much things to do and there's like etiquette towards it. And I think the biggest <laughs> lesson that we learned is that we never knew that when you email an agent and be like, hey, we want to book this person, you send an offer. And if they say accepted, it means they are locked in and you have to pay them you and you have to, <laughs> yeah, and you, you have to. just turn around and be like, no, nah, we don't want to do it no more. And we did that. <laughs> <laughs> so like, we've got a few agents that are like, yeah, we're like, oh, no, we changed our mind. We don't have enough money. And then we did that bear. And I think we learned that really quickly and the hard way. I remember um, the first time when we saw a rider. I was like, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a rider. We saw a rider. What's a rider for people who don't who don't know it, what it is? It's just an artist. It's a tech rider and a hospitality rider. rider. So mm-hmm. hospitality is like drinks, food, towels, refreshments, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So when we first saw that, I was like, is this what people request? Yeah, we're like, I said, how do you afford this? No, but you were even annoyed. Like, why are they requesting so much things? Like, <laughs> what's that? Where do we yeah. get the money to pay for this? What, what sort of stuff are artists asking oh for? Oh my god, they always ask for towels. That's like towels. the number one thing. For. about 16 bottles of drink that they're never going to drink. drink yeah and bringing it back to the UK like black club culture has always been quite a political space like both the the events the music and the individuals that party themselves so from 2005 to 2017 there was this risk assessment form called form 696 and the Met Police used it to shut down parties and one of the criticisms of the form was that it was kind of it racially profiled certain nightclubs or certain events because there was a line in the form that said, you know, is there a particular ethnic group attending? If yes, please state this group. It's really interesting to kind of see how, as just black people who want to experience joy, like we're essentially criminalized for that, for wanting to gather, for wanting to enjoy music. And do you think, as as people who put on events now, do you think those who are operating under a time in which 696 existed, do you think they felt that it was... Like they felt put off from putting on events. You think that stifled black nightlife? I think so. I hundred percent think so. I think even sometimes when we first started out, our first opportunity to use or hire a venue, I feel like at the time it was in 2016. I feel like if it wasn't a black owner, it probably wouldn't have happened. um, We used to um, email venues off our corporate emails, so we all worked in banks Mm. at the time. So we'd email via HSBC or whatever. So it looked like it's going to be like a corporate event. Well, actually, hold on. We're actually going to throw a party for a bunch of black people. Mm. And there used to be like, oh shit, like they've been hoodwinked. They can't yes. go back now. But because they thought it was like, we were like people in this banking space that was trying to throw like an event, they thought they saw money. Mm. But we had to like kind of trick them because they didn't want, they didn't really want us really. And then mm. I think it was really hard for us to kind of like get over that. But, and, and, it, and it took a while to understand their perspective because it's a licensing risk like you've just mentioned right because yeah. they've got the pressures coming from the police and right. I guess if if anything happens they're like oh licensing 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 but it's like mm. black people are not scary man like yeah. what's wrong with you like yeah. we're gonna come have a good time we'll be gone by 10 o'clock <laughs> when you speak to a bunch of like the people that did it before us I think they they're like oh wow why did we never think of doing it in the daytime and I feel right. like because we were doing it in the daytime where I thought a little bit of leeway when all the 696 stuff happened I think because it was nighttime. And it was a bunch of black people. They were like, yeah, yeah cool, this is not happening. This is going to um, cause trouble. I feel bad at the same time because it's a bit like paved they the paved way. the way for us because when you when you like read back on stuff like what happened was so solid and stuff like that yeah. and all those guys and how all their stuff used to get locked off. Like, if that happened to us, we'd actually cry. <laughs> yeah. In the middle of the dance, the police are like, wrap it up. I'm like, yeah. sorry? It's crazy. Yeah, you have to arrest me. Yeah. It's so crazy when you think about it. Like, imagine the middle of DLT p- police just come in and just like, yeah, lock off the dance. And there's 1,500 people inside. And you're just like, huh? So yeah. now, yeah, it's mad. It's actually crazy. But it's like, it's, it's 
it's good though that you kind of have the space you have now and like the people that came before you came before you but it's really interesting to to see that you kind of opted more towards the day party in order mm. to avoid that I guess harassment or pushback yeah and it was very intentional with the day parties and it made a lot of conversations easier as well um, in terms they don't of, make money in the days they don't they, there's no day trade for, for bars and restaurants right. and so it's like oh you can get this many people here at this time and you'll be out by when so it made that conversation a little easier yeah. and so when I think about I guess the history of like black music and culture and black parties I think about places like Iron Apple. and before we were recording this podcast I was talking about how like the sort of like black British party holiday has felt like such a rite of passage into adulthood for like everyone in my family almost because I called my dad earlier today and my dad was like really big in the drum and bass scene he used to do put on his own drum and bass nights he used to DJ internationally at drum and bass nights and he remember he went to the first I think it's called like intermission he was a huge like holiday party that happened in Spain it was a big drum and bass thing and he was like I went to the very first one in 1995 with all of my friends and then my aunts and my cousin who is like maybe in her mid to late in their mid 30s they used to go to Iron Apple and Malia and do that stuff and you know my generation or just me I'm going to you know DLT Malta so it's always been a huge kind of part of like black British like culture and party going um but do you think that that sort of early Iron Apple scene and how influential influential UK Garage was there helped to pave the way for what you guys are doing today. Hundred percent. So I'm about sure my age because I used to go to Malia and Napa. So oh, is it? Listen, I was you there. might have aunt and my cousin. <laughs> Bro, I might. We might be homies. <laughs> so yeah, I did Napa. I did Malia. I did Ibiza. And like you said, those um, things they were crazy because it's like, I was so young then. Like so, I'm thinking, raw. Like this is sick. Look at all the people that I know, plus all these other black people that I don't know. And we're on this island and it feels like we're the only one on the island and we're all going to the same raves. We're all going to the same mm. beach parties. We're getting quad bikes. It was just insane. And it's like, it definitely paved the way for like, for me anyway, in terms of like putting together a motor. It's like, okay, I know what this feels like. I know mm. what my first experience of a black party holiday was like. And I, and I know what I want people to feel 100% paved the way. For me, I just remember coming back on that holiday, like, yo, that was sick. And you felt free as well. So yeah. and it's that freedom and that joy that we want to keep. Let's take a minute, party people, and when we come back, we'll hear about how Ayanapa became a world-famous party island. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back, Ravers. 
Ayanapo was a huge moment in the history of party holidays. In the mid-1990s, garage nights in the UK were exploding. Two club nights dominated the scene, Pure Silk and Twice As Nice. Welcome aboard, all listeners, welcome aboard, all ravers. This is the Pure Silk Ayanapa album, 2000. By 1999, both nights were out in Ayanapa and each summer, the UK garage scene would decamp to this tiny Cypria island. And for almost a decade, it was the place to be. So forget Ibiza, this year, it's Ayanapa. But with every rise comes a fall. After a series of violent incidents, the island's reputation got worse and Garage was eventually banned. The legacy of Ayanapa will always be the Garage. And Ayanapa is something that we created that would have been from, the, from the, our culture where we were at the helm of this. DJS is the founder of Pure Silk, the first UK Garage night to go to Ayanapa. We started with where it all began for him. The young kids, I used to listen in the 80s, listen to Lock Into All The Pirates. I just loved the whole Acid House explosion and it just progressed from there, really. I used to buy records every Sunday, uh, started going to the raves, Biology, Sunrise, Genesis. Then it progressed into the hardcore, the living dreams, the elevations. And so it was just a raver, really. I suppose that was the whole apprenticeship of uh, trying to be a DJ, but trying to actually be a DJ was very difficult in those days. What were some of the challenges? I'm Asian, so you, 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 there was no Asians in the game. And it's, even up until today, very, very few. Mm. How I did become a DJ was eventually when I started Pure Silk. So that's obviously my own platform now. was probably the easiest way of doing it, but prior to that, very difficult. I want to kind of get into the music, so specifically garage music. In the mid-1990s, it really started to take off in the UK. And can you kind of take us back to that time, like being in the centre of it all? What was it like? I'd say probably one of the first pivotal nights was Sunday night at the Gas Club. And you'd have Daryl B, Norris the Boss, Creed, Dominic Spreadlove. And this was the real first root of the, of the scene mm. uh, in London. DJ Dominic on the decks. Welcome to Spread Love, each and every Sunday night at the Gaz. We started a culture every Sunday. is the part, major part of the history. This was around the 95 period, and then early 97, January, uh, we started this Pure Silk. And so whilst you were kind of putting on these nights, the UK garage like, was basically dominating the club scene. But we know that from 2005, the Met Police used the 696 form, which basically made it a lot harder for people to put on specific nights. What do you remember about that time, specifically Form 696? There was a lot of problems at that, po- at that moment. Garage from 97, 96, 97, 98, 99 was full of posers, Gucci loafers, which in a rave, where, where I come from, you didn't go out to rave like this. So it's full of posers, so you'd have like the gangsters, young gangsters who want to be want to be gangsters who are just making so much money coming, going to the bar and not oh can I have a drink? It's a buying a crate of champagne sort of thing. And as it progressed, when something's hype, it just attracts people. Then it attracts the little gangs, and you've got the biggest party at the at the time, and mm. they, everyone wants to be there. They know all the girls are going to be there. The way people dressed and to came come out to a garage event was unbelievable it was you know the footballers were in our events he was the most yeah. famous one as well we used to have Rio Ferdinand he was really no big. way yeah, yeah we had loads of uh, he was raving to, to garage yeah. in the clubs Rio, yeah 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 
And so with all of it, kind of you saying there's this this whole thing of all these the different gangs, do you think it was bad enough for these forms to come in and stifle the, the scene? I can understand the police's concerns, but the police need to do more in terms of doing their job mm. rather than now coming to do a 696 form. Because I think, like, the violence is not something that's unique to that specific scene or that specific music. It kind of happens everywhere, but it does feel like a lot of the targeting was quite racialized because, you know, 696 form asked for, you know, what's the ethnicity of the party goes, who are the MCs, what kind of music is it? And so it was very much trying to pick up on things, asking about race without really asking about race. So you had a, so they had an excuse to be like, ultimately, you know, this can't happen. that's what it came down to in the end, just like basically ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So, which then we couldn't, we couldn't do no more events in London. There were one or two garage which were very white, cheesy, fluffy, were allowed to, but we couldn't. Mm. They, they completely closed us down. It, it affected a lot of people in that game. It was yeah. really financially. Yeah. Because now as a DJ, as a promoter, um, record, everything is the ripple effects of everything. Record labels to a major collapse. I just felt the police, they didn't handle it the right way. We became the scapegoat. Yeah, it's sad that over-policing has kind of, like, led to this whole incredible, like, thriving scene being, like, basically squashed because of racism. I want to kind of get into the Iron Upper side of things now because I'm really, really interested in this. Like, growing up, I would kind of see my cousins, you know, my my aunts, like, going abroad to Iron Upper to go to these parties. It was like, it was a huge thing for them and you would kind of hear it even in the mixes they were listening to. They would come back and they'd be playing the songs or they'd be talking about their time there. And it, I kind of started to view it as a bit of like a kind of rite of passage into like, essentially like Black British adulthood because it was like what all of the older people around me were doing. Um, and so in 1998, it's kind of a year after Pure Silk was launched and it was drawing huge crowds in London. But what made you want to take it to Ayanapa, how did that even come about? So the Malas family, who are the family of the island, they had a venue called the Pizzazz Club, which was their biggest venue, capacity of around 2,000 people. Tony, who was their general manager of the company, got a message to me, I had to go and meet him. So I went there and saw him. He said, look, I've seen what you're doing and everything. Um, I'd like you to come and play here. Of the head of the family, uh, he called a meeting with me at the radio station. They had Napa Radio. He said, look, guys, um, I said, yeah, I'm interested in doing this venue. I think I think if we go back to the UK and put a campaign behind this, I think we could bring people over and really mm. make an impact next year. And I think the club's great. And he said, yeah, no, I, I think so as well. He said, if we're going to start this, we're going to start this next Friday. Yeah, so this first night at Spoonie, me and Creed, we attracted about 1,000 people. The music was growing. Everything was it was it was the right moment. You know, things got sometimes things have got to happen at the right moment. And so, nineteen ninety nine, it was just two thousand people every week, every Friday, in Pizzazz Club. And then we got had a lot of the press contact us. So, MTV, Radio One, and these sort of people went to get behind us. Yeah, 
expose the island a little bit. And it's incredible because then it just became a huge part of like British culture. Do you know what I mean? Like Ayanapa is just something that is a staple to so many people. And like everyone's kind of familiar with it. They're familiar with the music. They're familiar with the videos, the culture around it. And like you said, the press, there was a lot of press coming. And it's obviously because you know, huge people themselves were coming over, the music was blowing up, but then it also came with the sort of violence. Do you remember much of that in, in your time? That wasn't there in the first few years. Um, first biggest press that came was from a MTV party on the beach with Trevor Nelson. There was a big stabbing and it was all over the news. And it was, I was in the UK for that week, so I flew back the next week and thinking, wow, can't believe how big this news is. Mm. Why has it, it blown up like this? That was 2000. So 99, 2000, 2001, it was, they were thriving years. Even though you had that incident at Trevor Nelson and they blew up. I think come 2001, I think you had the, the music was changing where you were younger. MCs, groups were forming. Wanted to use the garage scene as a platform for them to expose themselves and go on to become artists. So we had obviously that Soul Sorry crew and these are guys who'd come to Iron Napa who have never been on holiday before. Mm. They're coming, they're earning money. Mm. You know, I understood it, to be fair. So you had these groups come along, pay as you go, and, and Dizzy Rascal. So this, the music was changing. In 2003, when Dizzy Rascal was there, he yeah. was stabbed and that kind of made a bit of like a dent. You know, a lot of people were talking about it. He was like kind of somewhat of a big artist at the time. A lot of younger people looked up to him. A lot of young people enjoyed his music. And that was kind of like a, a bit of a pivotal moment. And then, you know, after all of that, the mayor then banned Garage being played in the clubs for two years. And do you think that kind of, I guess, started the demise of the scene or even of Ayanapa being a place where people go to listen to this music? We felt as urban, whatever you want to call us, we never had what I what Judge Jules had in IB for, what Paul Oakenfold had and what Carl Cox had. It was IB for me, it wasn't ours. In Ayanapa, we're the stars. So when they're coming to play, they're not the stars. So they would be playing in the castle club, Paul Oakenfold, but they're not the stars. We're the mm. stars now. Yeah, I think this is where the racial thing starts. It's non-white. Yeah. It's more of a story for them. It went from positive to negative press. Yeah. And that didn't help. And so how did all of these incidents end up affecting Pure Silk? What we didn't like was the music had changed, the crowd had changed. We wasn't enjoying it no more. Yeah. We had like, then you had more crews, like Nasty Crew, like Kano. And, and in the end, we could feel the numbers of the island decreasing. It wasn't the same no more. I think the press had hurt it. The publicity wasn't good. So the, the numbers in generally wasn't the place to come no more. It's interesting because I can't think of anything that really replaced Ayanapa. It was kind of, it was there and then afterwards it it wasn't. I mean, I know Ibiza is still there, but I just feel like Ayanapa was so distinctly, distinctively different. Like it provided something very different that I don't think has really been replicated. It hasn't. It hasn't. I always want, I've never been one to draw the race card. I've never, because I've always... I understand size, so I'm going to sit here and start Because I've always got through, there's always opportunities for me. But I always wondered, was it a case of this was somewhere for, like, the urban people, which I always felt there's a racial something, because never had a destination popped up where it rivaled Ibiza, and still to this day it hasn't happened. 
Mm-hmm. You said about mortar and everything, but nothing rivaled anything. And I always wondered, was there some sort of narrative from the press to really, you see it with the footballers somewhere, with sometimes, you know, a white player does it, when a black player does the same thing, it's really, there's a narrative. Did they want to kill it off? I always felt there was something behind it. I don't think it is a reach to say that black joy is really criminalised. And we see this in the way it's over-policed. We know this from Form 696, from the way that a whole genre was basically squashed because of bad press and policing. I think it's so important to cultivate spaces for black joy because yes, these people are putting on an event, but we know it's so much more than that. So we should support and we should attend and we should shout about all of the amazing things these event promoters are doing. That's all party people. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. And listen, if you loved it, then subscribe and leave me a review. This week's episode was produced by Hattie Moya, sound design by Mao Lasetto, original music by Axel Caputier, and the executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. See you next Thursday. This is The Guardian. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.